Hello guys and welcome to a special bonus episode, well bonus for most of you guys listening, of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm the host and creator of the show, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, welcoming you all, well as I said most of you, to a special bonus episode to hopefully get us, those of us who are having to self-isolate right now, I bet you must be proper bloody fed up, I can imagine I would be. So as I've said on the Facebook page and on Twitter and everything like that, what I can do, what I'm going to do guys, is if it helps pass even like an hour or half an hour or something like that, I'm going to remaster some of the bonus Patreon episodes of the show and put them out for everybody to listen to because I know it sounds a bit Oscar speech and everything, but we are all in this together guys and we've got to do what you can to get through. So don't hesitate in making them available for everybody. And my Patreoners seem to agree from the response that I've heard, so that's all good. So the Patreon episode that I've chosen for a bonus for everybody, for today anyway, for this one, is the, actually it's the third Patreon episode that I ever did, and it's a bit of a local case to me. It's from a village where I grew up, well, it's from a village quite near to where I grew up, about four miles away. Now, I remember the crime very well at the time. I was, um, I can't remember now, about 15 I was, I think. And it was massive news in the local area. It's almost forgotten about now. I had to ask my mum and dad and they barely remembered it. My dad did, but only just, really. So it's a largely forgotten one. It's a very unfamiliar one. It's not one I've heard covered anywhere else, which is why I chose it as a Patreon episode. It's what I try and do. This bonus episode does contain descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always guys, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a bonus episode, Corona Bonus number 2, for a tale I've entitled, The Tinkersdale Woods Murder. So to the third Patreon episode that I ever did, and for this one, we're back in my home area of North Wales. Now, if you listen regularly to the show, if you have done from the inception of it, you've heard me feature a number of obscure cases from my home area in episodes of the first and the second series. I think we've covered um, Catherine Gowan's murder in the New Brighton Vet case. There's Sophie Hook, of course, yeah. But the, the case featured in this bonus episode goes back to 1993, and it took place in an area less than four miles from the village where I spent my childhood, before I moved away when I went into the Air Force many years ago. As I said, it's a largely forgotten case, and there's relatively little available to research about it without doing some proper digging. It takes place near the village of Harden in North Wales, which is notable for being the home for a time of Britain's oldest and longest-serving Prime Minister, William Ewart Gladstone, and it's the home of former Liverpool, and perhaps forgettably for a time, Manchester United striker Michael Owen, who is an absolutely dreadful pundit as well. If you've ever seen him on Match of the Day or anything like that, he's awful. Harden's a lovely area, it's the site of a Grade 1 listed medieval castle, and was listed in 2014 in the Sunday Times annual Best Places to Live list. There are many lovely walks in the Harden area, there are several nice pubs and restaurants, and myself, for myself, it holds a special fondness because it was the place where many years ago now, I first started doing what's another passion of mine, aside from true crime podcasting of course, amateur dramatics. 
I joined a group of players who were based in the village, and with some of whom we went on to form our own group, Clueless Players, through which we did some absolutely fabulous stuff, and I've got some fantastic memories from it. Now the Clueless Players are on hiatus right now, but one day, like a phoenix from the flames, they may return. See? Drama or what? The smashed stone wall at the place known as Tinker's Dale, which is a picturesque beauty spot near the town of Harden, had seen several accidents there over the years, as it was shattered in many places which bore grim testimony to this. The A550 road which runs through it and leads from the village of Dobbs Hill, near Penneford, to the town of Harden is in places unlit, it's very slippery and very unforgiving and it's a lonely stretch of country road with a number of tight curves that have sprung nasty surprises on many drivers travelling it over the years. Part of the road is flanked either side by a low stone wall now broken up in parts, which changes to a two-pole fence some distance up, and on the other side of this fence is a substantial embankment that leads down to Tinkersdale Woods. Search of the scene if you look it up on Google Maps, when it was mapped in 2009 shows a combed off area where a vehicle has struck a section of this fencing. And when I was researching the episode many years ago, well not many years ago, but two years ago, I visited the scene because as I said it's close to my hometown growing up where my mum and dad still live. The lighting and twists and turns of the road have not improved very much over the years at all. And the road is still a dangerous section of one with many sections of the fencing missing testifying to the many accidents that have occurred and it's generally still a very busy one. I remember some years ago a friend of mine being in one of those who was involved in an accident and it was quite a serious one as well on the very stretch. Now when I went there about two years ago I actually made a bit of an on-location video which I've still got on my phone and which will I will share in the Facebook group after the episode, so you can get to see exactly where I mean. Always like to do that if I get the chance. Whilst I was filming this video, I did meet a very charming couple who were out dog walking, because it's always a bloody dog walker, isn't it? And they were very helpful and knowledgeable about the layout of the area, having been residents of the area for many years. Now, they didn't remember the case at all, but as soon as I told them the details... They both turned into amateur Jessica Fletchers and were off looking at and working out the logistics of where exactly it was and I chatted to them for a while and they did leave me with some friendly advice about heading down to Tinkersdale Woods at any time. Apparently now it's a well-known area for cottaging and local legend has it that a mad axeman roams the woods, one who apparently doesn't like cottaging too much so I decided to give that a bit of a miss really. But back in 1993, to the couple who found the mangled red mini metro, it looked like they'd come across the scene of a tragic accident. The car was down an embankment with its headlights still on, and had crashed head-on through a low stone wall into a large beech tree, the bend on the narrow road that the couple found themselves parked on being a notorious accident black spot. So about 10.40pm on the cold evening of Sunday the 3rd of January 1993, it looked at first like the dangerous road had claimed another victim. The young couple had spotted the wreck while driving from the direction of Dobbs Hill towards Harden and had carried on to raise the alarm at the nearest core box, which was a short distance away in Glynway, 
a road just east of the main high street in Harden Village itself. As they were heading towards the core box, the car headlights picked up the figure of a man walking a relatively short distance away from the scene, and the couple slowed down, thinking that this may be the driver of the metro, and stopped to see if he needed any medical assistance. However, when he was asked, the man somewhat sternly denied any knowledge of any accident, and went on his way towards Harden, so the couple carried on and contacted police through the 999 service. Once they'd contacted police, they parked at the nearest safe spot and awaited their arrival. Police arrived on the scene shortly, and as they shone their torches into the darkness, it did seem as though the spot had indeed claimed another victim, as they could see the body of a woman, presumably the driver of the vehicle, lying dead next to it, just down a small bank in an icy stream that flowed over a rocky riverbed. Her skull was fractured, and she was dressed casually, as if she'd just popped out on an errand. Her eyes were wide open as if caught in shock, as her vehicle had mounted the verge and careered through a massive gap in the wall, that had been left by a previous accident and come to rest hitting the tree. The bonnet of the Metro was severely dented, both wings were buckled, and its windscreen was smashed in at least three places. Knowing that the road was this notorious accident black spot and it had seen its share of tragedy over the years, this accident would have been just written off as yet another, but it was made more difficult for officers attending the scene when a check on the registration of the Red Mini Metro revealed that the driver, the dead woman, was someone known to them. She was the wife of one of their own colleagues. The victim, 37-year-old Italian-born Madeline Jones, was the wife of North Wales Police Sergeant Stephen Jones, an officer attached to the local station in the nearby village of Eulo. Sergeant Jones had been on duty earlier in the day, but had long since finished his shift and was now at home. And someone was now going to have to go and tell him what had happened and break the news to him and the couple's two children, Martin, aged nine, and William, aged six. This unenviable task fell to Inspector Neil Kite, and it was about 11.15pm when he knocked on the front door of the police house where the Joneses lived, close by to the former police station on Carlines Avenue in Eulo. His colleague was still there, still up and dressed in his regulation white police shirt and blue serge uniform trousers when he opened the door, and must have known that this was not good news. Upon being told the tragic events that had been discovered by his friend and superior, the 34-year-old sergeant slumped into a chair in the living room, holding his head in his hands and sobbing. My God, how could this have happened? She only went for petrol on a loaf. Now, Inspector Kite had many times in his career broken news like this to people. He'd been through the trauma of having to tell a family that a loved one had been taken from them suddenly and in tragic circumstances many times, and it never got any easier. If anything, it was harder if it was someone you knew and worked alongside who was affected. People tend to react to news like this in different ways though, don't they? Some may collapse and faint with shock, some are tearful and break down completely on the spot, and some are numb and quiet because the news hasn't quite sunk in, and it could be days or even weeks before this happens. 
so Inspector Kite should have had no reason to suspect that his colleague's grief should have been anything but genuine, but call it a copper's hunch, there was just something about the way in which Sergeant Jones had reacted to this news that seemed contrived. It just wasn't right. And when the scene was lit under the glare of mobile lights that were brought to the scene of the accident from the nearby North Wales Police Headquarters in the nearby town of Mould, it wasn't just Inspector Kite who was having serious doubts. Like all UK police forces, North Wales has a specialist team of traffic accident investigators, and the team is extensively and well trained in what they do. They know what all types of fatal car crash look like, how destructive they are to human life as well as to the machines themselves, the scene and any property or street furniture. And for the team employed at Tinkersdale Woods that evening, something about the damage to the car as well as to the victim didn't seem to add up. Lead forensic scientist Dr John Davidson was troubled by what he'd found at the crash scene. Now whilst it's of course true that bodies are sometimes catapulted from cars in a violent collision, the impact that the Mini Metro had struck the tree at had not been that great. The front and sides of the car were heavily damaged, granted, but the vehicle was not written off by any means. In fact, it was determined that the low impact speed it had struck it at could have been as low as 10 miles per hour, a fact that was supported by the absence of any skid marks on the road at the point where the Metro had left the road. Yet the body of 37-year-old Madeline Jones lay in the shallow stream about six feet away from the vehicle, as though she'd been catapulted from it upon impact. But if the vehicle had been travelling as slowly as 10 miles per hour, therefore there wouldn't have been enough force to have thrown Madeline from the car, and her injuries meant that she couldn't have crawled. The officers could see even where the body lay that she had one massive head injury, but there were no other cuts or bruises that you'd expect someone flung out of a moving car to have had. There was nothing like that. Investigators knew that violent accidents and freak occurrences sometimes went hand in hand, but something about this scene didn't sit right with the experienced officers, and they believed collectively that the scene looked staged. Any doubts about this were dispelled when they looked at the interior of the car. The driver's seat of the Metro was found to be fixed in the furthest back adjustable position that it would go, but Mrs Jones was just 4 feet 11 inches tall in height. Her normal seat position would have had to have been in the furthest forward position, or she wouldn't have been able to reach the pedals, and in a front-end collision, seats were always shot forward, not backward, if they shifted at all. Most sinister of all, there were three separate impact points on the car windscreen, but Madeline had just one deep gash on her head. It looked as if the accident had been staged, and when Dr. Davison found traces of rust and metal on the windscreen, indicating someone had smashed it with a hammer, his theory was confirmed. It was felt time for the accident specialists to hand over the investigation to the criminal investigation team, because they believed this was a case of murder, not a tragic accident. Detective Superintendent Gareth Jones, Deputy Head of North Wales CID, took charge of the scene, and at 4am on January the 4th, Madeline's body was removed from the scene and examined by Home Office pathologist Dr Donald Waite. 
The post-mortem carried out revealed no glass fragments from the windscreen were found present in Madeline's hair, which would have been expected and consistent with her head having struck the windscreen, and her body showed no signs of bruising across the chest or stomach. Again, consistent marks caused by a seatbelt to a person upon impact. It was determined that Madeline had died from one massive crushing blow to her skull caused by something blunt and heavy with a rounded surface, and Dr. Waite had more to add. There was a blunt trauma to the left side of the forehead. The shape was inconsistent with the head hitting the windscreen, but was exactly what you'd expect if someone had been struck by a police truncheon, said Dr. Waite. But you couldn't see that coming, could you? It was the view of the pathologist that the fatal injuries did not tally with the description of the accident at all. Detectives listened as the accident investigation officers voiced their suspicions and agreed that there was certainly cause for concern with the impact marks to the windscreen, the absence of glass fragments in Madeline's hair and especially regarding the positioning of the driver's seat. There was no doubt that it was set at the wrong setting for Mrs Jones but her husband, that was a different matter. Sergeant Jones was 6 feet 1 inches tall and weighed 19 stone, a man so large and powerful that his nickname amongst colleagues was The Bull. And the furthest setting back for the driver's seat would have been the necessary setting for him to be able to drive the vehicle, a likely implausible assumption considering it was his wife's car. Sergeant Stephen Jones was now the prime suspect in the murder of Madeline Jones. Had he murdered his wife and faked a car accident to disguise the fact, and had he been behind the wheel when the car hit the tree, with Madeline already dead in the passenger seat beside him? But what was the motive? Stephen Jones had been a serving police officer for 17 years, and had very quickly in his career reached the rank of sergeant. He'd spent some time early in his career teaching at police training college before moving on to the community of Eulo where he lived and worked. He was a well-liked, well-respected officer and just some few days before had been hailed a hero in the local press for rescuing a woman who had become trapped in a freezing pond nearby in Eulo, the trap. Sergeant Jones had gone in to assist the woman spending 20 minutes up to his waist after wading into sub-zero water trying to haul her to safety. He had managed to rescue her and both he and the woman were treated for hypothermia and exposure afterwards. Now knowing the trap like I do pretty much and if anybody from the local area is listening and you do know the trap he should have probably been treated for tetanus, rabies, Saturday night fever, cubic foot, you name it you probably catch it from the bloody trap. It's probably filled with coronavirus as we speak. He and Madeline had been married for 14 years and with their two sons, the couple appeared to be a happy one, known for being involved in the community both professionally, helping out with school fates and supporting the local community and socially being a popular couple who held lots of parties. Yet as with lots of things, appearances can be deceptive. Detectives went to see Stephen Jones and asked him to accompany them to the local police headquarters in the nearby town of Mould, whilst the shocked and traumatised children were cared for by relatives. Whilst he was questioned there, a search party went back to his home. 
Very quickly, they discovered evidence that suggested Stephen Jones had crossed the line from hero police officer to cold-blooded murderer. In the boot of his Rover car was his regulation-issued truncheon, which was heavily bloodstained. His regulation-issued riot helmet was also nearby, and again, this was splashed with blood. Inside the car also lay a black plastic bin liner on the floor, and the surfaces of the interior were also covered in more fresh blood smears. In the garage of his home, a rust-covered hammer with a head consistent to have made the impact marks on the windscreen of the metro was found. Murder investigators had more than enough evidence that there had been foul play involved, and before long, they were to find evidence of a motive for murder as well. Stephen Jones was a tall, dark, and classed by many as handsome man with an easy-going personality, and during the 14 years he'd been married, he'd exploited this and had cheated on his wife numerous times in a succession of casual affairs. His latest lover was a pretty 19-year-old barmaid of a local pub in Eulow called Julie Rutherford. The affair was an open secret really, and many of his colleagues knew, but for Jones, this wasn't just another fling like the others. He wanted to leave his wife and children and settle down with Julie. He had had a sniff that the grass was greener on the other side and had decided that this was what he wanted. The two-time sergeant had confided in several people about this and had told friends and colleagues that he was worried that a divorce may have damaging repercussions to his career as he wanted to be a high flyer and wanted promotion to inspector and onwards. Not about having respect for his wife, or how it would affect his children, not bothered about that, how they would live, he was bothered about his career. He sounds delightful, doesn't he? But he was even more worried about the financial implications that he would be left in if he got a divorce. If he left, he would have his wife and his two boys to financially support for many years to come. And digging further, it looked as if Jones had already done some serious financial planning for his future. In the previous 12 months, he'd taken out a series of insurance policies on his wife's life, and one policy that he'd started paying into just over two months before, in October 1992, had boosted the value of his wife's life to £60,000, with himself as the sole beneficiary of this sum in the event of his wife's death. That works out at about 85 and a half grand today, I looked up. So they had clear-cut ideas now, sex and money for the motives, the evidence found in Jones's car and garage, and the inconsistencies at the scene of the crash with it being an accident. Investigating officers didn't doubt for a second that Jones had committed the ultimate crime and had killed his wife for financial gain and freedom to be with Julie Rutherford. Several mourners attended Madeline's funeral on the 18th of January 1993, some 15 days after her death. Stephen Jones did not attend, but he did send a wreath bearing the simple message, From Steve. He didn't attend because a few days after her death, Stephen Jones was charged with the murder of his wife Madeline and remanded in custody awaiting trial. He strongly denied all of the charges. Whilst Jones was on remand awaiting trial, police forensic experts were also able to add more damning evidence to the file against him. 
an examination of the clothing that he'd been wearing when, when Inspector Kite went to break the news to him about his wife's death, his police issue uniform, revealed hundreds of minuscule fragments of smashed windscreen glass that were trapped in the fibres, alongside minute traces of blood that were of the same group as his wife's. Particles of rust found adhering to shards of shattered glass from the crash scene were also matched to the rusty hammer that was found in the garage at his home, and it was found to match the marks on the windscreen, as well as dents and scratches to the wings of the metro car. This was all solid evidence that proved it was not the impact of Madeline Jones's head that had smashed the windscreen when the car had hit the tree that night. It had been deliberately shattered with three blows from the rusty hammer. Dent marks in the bonnet and front wings to add weight to the crash theory were also found to have been caused by blows from the same hammer. To add to this growing catalogue of evidence, the couple who had first spotted the crash metro and the ones who had contacted 999 were interviewed by detectives and it transpired that they'd seen Stephen Jones hurriedly leave in the area on foot. It had been him who they'd stopped to offer assistance to. They told police the story of thinking that he may have been the driver, and so they had pulled up and offered their assistance, but Jones had quickly denied knowing anything about the crashed vehicle and had continued on his way. The couple had then driven onwards towards the nearest phone box and alerted the emergency services. Police Sergeant Stephen Jones went on trial for the murder of his wife Madeline at Carnarvon Crown Court on the 11th of November 1993, where he pleaded not guilty to the murder of his wife. Mr Anthony G QC for the prosecution told the jury, This was a murder premeditated and deliberately and carefully carried out for selfish reasons and in no small way called on Sergeant Jones's experience of such cases gained in 17 years in the police force. Over the next two weeks of the trial, the prosecution outlined the hypothesis of what had happened that Sunday night. It was alleged that in the weeks before the killing, Jones had cleared out the garage of his home to make room for his wife's car. Then on the night of the murder, he had lured Madeline into the garage by telling her the callous lie that they had to rush to the Countess of Chester Hospital because her brother had suffered a heart attack. Once both were in the garage, he dealt the savage, ultimately fatal blow to Madeline, and before blood could spill everywhere, over his clothing and onto the floor, he'd covered his wife's shattered head with a black bin liner. Now when I was a policeman many myself many moons ago, I did baton training and I know how painful an effective a strike with a truncheon, a baton, nightstick, whatever you want to call it, I know much that bloody hurts. And that was only being struck across the legs. And every single time I was, I went down like a fella, one-legged fella doing the okie-cokie. I was in proper bits. And believe me, if you get hit like that, you're not getting up in a hurry. So to strike someone across the head with one with the power and force that must come when you've got murder in mind, well, that'd be catastrophic and the wound must have been absolutely horrendous. To prevent the bin liner from slipping off, Jones had secured the bag with bandages taken from a first aid kit that he kept in the police patrol car that he used. Having already pre-positioned his own car near Tinkersdale, 
because a witness was found that observed him driving at 8.15pm that evening nearby to the scene with no headlights on. Jones then drove the Metro to the spot with Madeline's body slumped next to him in the passenger seat, just a mile and a half from the couple's home. He had then placed his riot helmet on to protect himself from any injury or marks caused by the impact, pulled the plastic bin liner off Madeline's head and deliberately drove the Metro into the tree, simulating a fatal car accident. He'd smashed the windscreen with a hammer, simulating the impact of his wife's head striking it in the collision, and had then done the same to the front wings of the Metro to add authenticity to the staged crash. Jones had hoped that this would be the perfect murder, but his plan went wrong almost immediately when the vehicle was discovered before he had time to get fully clear of the area, get home and dispose or eradicate any of the evidence. Thinking about it, it was a massive risk because there was no way to ascertain that the road would be quiet and no one would come up and catch him in the act. You can't see any distance up the road, the bends and contours and heavily wooded areas make it impossible to see any approaching headlights. And sure enough, a car had come past relatively quickly. When the couple had discovered the crashed car and immediately rung 999, this meant that the police were on the scene within mere minutes, and as the vehicle was quickly discovered to be registered to Stephen Jones's wife Madeline, it meant that his colleagues were quickly around to his house to inform him of the tragedy. This left him no time to dispose of any forensic evidence or to remove any bloodstains from his truncheon, his clothing or his riot helmet. Details of Jones's extramarital affairs were outlined to the court and details of the policies he'd taken out on his wife's life were revealed. 19-year-old Julie Rutherford, Jones's latest lover, also appeared to give testimony. An aspiring actress, Rutherford had been having an affair with Jones for a number of years since she was still at school and told the court he said he and his wife would be better off being friends and that he was going to get a divorce. We'd talked about divorce often. She then went on to tell the court how Jones had claimed he was worried about how a divorce would affect his chances of promotion. She claimed that she was unaware of the fact that he'd insured Madeline's life for the sum of £60,000 just two months previously, and that Jones had categorically never discussed taking any steps such as the drastic ones he was accused of. Stephen Jones told the court a different story to the one presented by the Crown, and testified that the death of Madeline Jones had been nothing more than a tragic accident. He claimed that the couple had argued that evening about his affair, which Madeline had found out about, and that his wife had stormed off during their route and had slipped, hitting her head as she fell. Jones told the jury, We had a row about my infidelity. In the course of the argument, she picked up a hammer. I took it off her, there was a struggle, and we both fell through the patio doors. She slumped down. I asked her if she was all right, and she didn't answer. There was a wound on her head and no pulse, because she was dead. Jones then went on to explain that he'd faked the fatal car crash because he knew that the way his wife had died would look suspicious, saying, At first I was numb, and then I panicked. I could not have her found dead like that at home, so I decided to fake a traffic accident. But Dr John Davidson, the lead forensic investigator who'd examined the scene at the Joneses' home in detail, refuted this. 
he testified to the court. I found no evidence of blood on the patio or the surrounding areas. There was no sign of a struggle or an assault whatsoever. Ultimately, it was the category of blunders that Jones had left in his wake that convinced the jury that his story was a tissue of lies and in no doubt of his guilt. After a short deliberation by the jury at the end of the two-week trial, on Thursday the 25th of November 1993, Police Sergeant Stephen Jones was convicted of the murder of his wife Madeline. Passing a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment onto the disgraced officer who stood impassive in the dock, Mr Justice Kennedy told him, That woman did nothing to affront you, she did no wrong. She bore your children, she loved them, and she no doubt loved you. You destroyed her life. You have not perhaps destroyed, but you have wholly undermined those boys' lives. It is quite plain that there is only one person you love, that is yourself. The sentence is life imprisonment. Afterwards, David Owen, the then Chief Constable of North Wales, said it was an appalling case and Jones had been rightly convicted. The investigation was carried out with a degree of thoroughness and impartiality and this reflected highly on the professionalism and integrity of the police officers involved, he said. The senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Gareth Jones, furthered this, saying, We take some consolation from the fact that he did not get away with it. It was a brutal and calculated murder and a brutal and calculated murder it was, if not a very well executed one when it came down to it. There's something especially evil in a serving and respected police officer, a person whose role it's supposed to be to protect the public and prevent crime, hatching a plan to kill the person who should be closest to him, his wife and his partner of 15 years, and the mother of his two sons, and then carrying it out in such a brutal, cold fashion. Now, as I said earlier, I do remember the case being big news around the area at the time, and it is forgotten around the area today. Well, it was in the cross-section of people that I spoke to when I asked them if they remembered it. I have no doubt that Stephen Jones set out to deliberately and callously kill his wife, but I think possibly that when it came down to it, the enormity of his actions, he was unable to think straight about what he was doing after the act. I mean, despite having attended what must have been dozens or hundreds of accidents in his career, he'd panicked and overlooked basic details that gave him and his crime away, such as over-smashing the windscreen, hitting it three times instead of once, and neglecting to move the driver's seat forward to the position that his wife would have been using had she been driving the vehicle. Perhaps adding groceries to the car interior to support his claim that she'd gone for petrol and a loaf would have been beneficial, or heading back a different way to his car so that he wasn't seen and remembered by anyone. Undoubtedly he wasn't expecting his wife's car to have been discovered as soon as it was, and when the couple stopped to ask him if he needed assistance, he must have panicked and rushed home in an attempt to remove any forensic evidence. Of course, as a police officer, he should have known the efficiency that the police national computer can ascertain who a vehicle is registered to. And with officers only having to travel a mile and a half to Carlines Avenue, with surely added impetus because the person involved was a wife of one of their own colleagues, well he must have known that the clock was against him. And of course, he wouldn't have been left alone. 
and so would not have had any chance to have removed the hammer, cleaned his truncheon, or his helmet. Which sounds absolutely disgusting, I know, and it doesn't it wasn't meant to. I wonder, and I certainly hope, that Stephen Jones had time to reflect on this as he began his life sentence way back in 1993. A prison sentence that would have undoubtedly been spent in the strictest closed conditions of Rule 43, because as a police officer, he would have been universally detested by the prison population, and this isolation and segregation would have been for his own protection. He'd lost everything, his liberty, his family, his career, all out of horrendous selfish actions driven by greed and infidelity. But most tragic of all, throughout all of this, Stephen Jones had left two boys effectively orphans, to be raised and cared for by relatives. I'd hope, but I would seriously doubt, that Jones had any remorse for this, but it's likely that any pity or remorse wasn't for anyone but himself, a complete cold-blooded killer. Now more than a quarter of a century has passed since the night Madeline Jones was brutally murdered by her husband. And during his imprisonment, Stephen Jones was reportedly a model prisoner. And nine years after his conviction, in the year 2000 he made a written application to the then Home Secretary requesting a review of the minimum terms of his sentence in view of his progress in prison since his conviction. This was based on his expressed and sincere remorse and his work on day release with the Royal National Institute for the Blind from the open prison where he was then serving his sentence. Yeah, open neck, nine years. What's that all about? Furthermore, Jones had begun a new relationship with a new girlfriend, which had rapidly blossomed, and he'd married for a second time in 2003. Somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, and I couldn't get my head around this either, Jones had also maintained contact with his children from his first marriage, Martin and William. I mean, Fair play to him, I don't know if I'd ever want anything to do with my dad again after he'd done something like that, but people are different, aren't they? As a result of these perceived combined efforts, the application for a reduction in his minimum sentence was successful, and his new minimum tariff was set at just 12 years and 3 months, resulting in Jones being released from prison in 2005. Stephen Martin Jones is today a free man again, and since his release there's no record of his status and very little available to research about the case, with no way to say where he, where he is resettled upon release. Now every single time that I drive past that spot in Tinkersdale Woods, I find myself thinking of the evil and callous actions committed by an equally evil and callous man one night so many years ago, and it really, really does chill me. I wonder if he himself has visited it afterwards, thinking about his actions. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I visited the scene where he'd staged the accident whilst I was researching the case, and I found it, although it's a picturesque and peaceful area, it's also quite eerie. Now, I don't know whether that's just me knowing the horror and the dark deeds that occurred there so many years ago, or is it perhaps something else? I will post up the videos that I took from the place. If you're a member of the Facebook group, then have a look on there. They'll be on there shortly. I hope that you've been intrigued by and found this bonus exclusive episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast informative and interesting. 
It was a case from the fridge blackboard that I'd wanted to cover for ages, even more so because I found it an absolutely fascinating case and it's one that I was glad to do as a Patreon episode and I'm equally glad to share with you guys now, hoping it passes half an hour for you while you're stuck inside, save you wanting to strangle the other half or murder the kids already and it could be months and months of it. So I hope it passes a bit of time. I hope you can join me back on The Regular Enthusiast, which I look forward to you joining me on. I thank you very much for joining me to listen today. And until we next speak, I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times. Stay indoors, guys. Let's do what we can. We'll all get through this. And I shall speak to you very, very soon. Thanks very much, folks. Stay enthusiastic and goodbye for now.